joy to be with you this morning. Uh, we have been in prayer for you at Brian and uh, for your pastor for a considerable amount of time here. And uh, it's not something that you, you know, a pastor who gives up his pulpit for a Sunday, that's not an easy thing or a slight thing to do. So um, much appreciative of, of uh, this opportunity. I want us to pray and then uh, we'll dig into God's word. Pray with me. Abba, thank you for your incredible grace to us this morning. King Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for our sins uh, and for life eternal and abundant life. Thank you so much for this precious congregation. I pray your continued move here. Thank you for Chris, for his faithfulness in ministry to you. I completely pray for, uh, for healing sustaining thank you for his heart and as we dig into your text father you and our worship today you are our focus our directive all that we do today as we'll read in your word uh, is we do for your glory and your honor bless these folks today holy spirit you have free reign in this place to do whatever you want and i pray that you would not only empower me but that you would move in our hearts so that we'd be different because we were in your house worshiping you. We love you, and we thank you for who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Interesting text that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, some selected uh, verses there. I've entitled this message, A Careful Consideration. You'll see evidence of that as we continue on in the text. But initially, just a thought for you. What are some things that we think about on a daily basis? And you alone could answer that question. Maybe you could answer that for your family. There are many things that we consider every day. We could be considering, if this is you, an SAT, an ACT, uh, making the grade. I was talking uh, with one of... Uh, Arise a senior this year in high school, and uh, he was sharing with me some major opportunities, that type of thing. That's definitely on the mind. You could be thinking about your work. You could think, be thinking about health, uh, tasks today, making it to KFC after the service. No, I'm just I'm kidding. Uh, or many things, relationships, your future, your weekend, your finances, the Vols winning, and that's, that's kind of a big funny right there but um, and I'm a UT fan as well so UT stretches far south in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning Paul calls the church at Corinth to a careful consideration especially regarding idolatry um, in this passage he exhorts the church and us to consider that at the start of this passage, he goes into a good bit of the history of Israel. Uh, your pastor spoke earlier about the three words that he considered as we were entering the Lord's table, and Paul talks about that in this passage. But he goes into that to have them think about their past. I want at the outset to say this. Paul loved this church. Paul cared for all of the churches that he planted. And so when he brings correctives, it's done in a spirit of grace. 
But sometimes that grace has to take an incredibly firm, uh, firm directive. And that's what we see here. As we'll see later on, this whole passage is wrapped up in 1 Corinthians 10.31 at the end of this. We'll bring this out later. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's been on a lot of magnets. That's been on a lot of refrigerators. But I wonder if that's our battle cry today. So let's begin reading uh, in chapter 10. Let's start in verse 14. I'm reading out of the NIV. Please follow along with whatever translation you have. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge yourselves for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving which we give thanks for participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break, as we've just celebrated here, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrifice as an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Mm -hmm. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot be a part of both the Lord's tables, table and of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Interesting thought. I want to start this morning by looking at a careful consideration. Look, if you will, in chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Interesting, the context he's sharing with uh, the new church at Corinth. He's sharing about Israel's history. But interesting, and we've taken this verse out of context often, but what truth today? Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. We could camp out at verse 13 for a long time. Uh, as part of the model or Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Practically speaking, we do enough of that on our own in the church and in life. But then he says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So what's going on here? Paul says flee. Why? Because the church was dealing with idolatry. You know the Corinthian church, Greek society, Greek mandates, and they were dealing with that. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Why? Because they were engaging it. Now, flee literally means book it out of Dodge, get out of there, go in the other direction. I wonder if that's us today. I wonder if we're actively in Christ fleeing idolatry, running from it, um, why? Well, we read later, it's an offense to a holy and righteous God. What does an idol say? It's something that we have set up on the throne of our lives that is not Jesus Christ. 
And there's a multitude of things that that could be. It's not diff that much different in our time than it was in Paul's time. Let me ask you a question. Why did God lay down the Ten Commandments? Uh, the mandates against, in this context, false images. Was it reflecting his nature? Yep. Was it to reflect his righteousness and his holiness? Absolutely. Have you thought about this line? And it deals with this passage. I believe one of the reasons why God laid down and laid out the Ten Commandments was for our protection. For our protection. Why? Well, let's look at a few things. What's the temptation here to flee from? Anything that would grab our total allegiance from a kind and righteous and gracious Abba. So the question is, and you have to fill in this blank, what's clamoring for our allegiance What's more important to us than Jesus? Nothing. And I'm thankful for Bill's Sunday school class earlier where we listed, he had us list some of those things and how oftentimes we put on the game face at church, right? I have students doing that at Bryan College. You see Pastor Chris, oh, could have had a knockdown drag out on the car coming, the kids wild, bad weekend of a Vols loss, and you see Pastor Chris, and it's like, hey, how are you? And we all do that. We're all guilty of that. But what are some things we can set up? And I'm going to show you how, I believe as we look at the Ten Commandments, that you shall not steal, bear, bear false witness, set up any graven image. What are some things we've set up? They're fleeting. If we've set up security in our lives, that can be taken away. If we've set up power, and power over individuals, if you're uh, in the corporate world, you have power over individuals, that's fleeting. Maybe even at school, uh, captain of the football team, cheerleader squad, homecoming court, whatever the case might be, that's fleeting. Stuff, stuff. Cars rust, head gaskets go south. <laughs> that's a pleasant thought here on a Sunday. That can, go, that can be taken away. It's fleeting, it's temporal. Education. Education does not secure, even religious seminary education does not secure an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's sharing that with the Greeks. Highly educated people. Highly educated. Same thing with us. Position. Position can be taken away in a second. Popularity. Here and gone. Fame and prestige. So many others. Bill mentioned this morning an inventory. Are we regularly taking, in the power of the Spirit, an inventory of our lives? Is there anything that we have set up as an idol on the throne that only Jesus can hold? And we talk about we're trying to dethrone Christ. Some people have said that. I don't like that analogy. Christ will not be dethroned. Christ will not be dethroned. Christ will not be compromised by anything of our setting up. It could even be some good things that we've set up as idols. Theological knowledge. Biblical superiority. We've got to approach those with the spirit of humility. Even a relationship with a godly man, godly woman, dating relationship can be set up as idolatry. Your children... Our children, I have a 19-year-old and a 13-year-old. 
can be set up as idols. So what does Paul say? Flee it. That doesn't mean leave them aside, but flee the spirit of idolatry. I want to reference here something real quick. So how do we know with this inventory? Turn over to Psalm 139. Real familiar passage. Psalm 139, looking at verses 23 and 24. I've labeled this the most dangerous prayer in Scripture. The most dangerous prayer in Scripture. Are we doing this kind of inventory? Uh, pray it, and some things will start happening. Now, this isn't a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That's heresy. You know, if you're walking with the Lord, well, you'll have great relationship. Your bank account will be full. You'll be totally healthy. I've had type 1 diabetes for 43 years. That's my thorn in the flesh. It's going nowhere. But God is sustaining through it. Look at 23 and 24. This is a text we often use, and we should, about the sanctity of life, how we were formed, how God fashioned us. But look at the tail end of that. 23 and 24. Search me, God. That is a dangerous endeavor, a dangerous prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. The next words in the IV translated, test me and know my anxious thoughts. We were talking about peace this morning in the fruit of the Spirit. How do we experience the peace of Christ? Yes, he gives us periods of rest, but how do we experience that? Normally through trials. If your bank account was unlimited, your relationships were perfect, uh... You were hovering above the ground on cloud nine. Would you at all, would we at all trust the Father for provision? Experience his peace? I don't know. That's a risky proposition. So he says, what? Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked or offensive way in me. And then the prayer of desperation. And lead me in the way of everlasting. A.K.A. I can't do this. It's an incredibly dangerous prayer. That's what we need to be praying regarding idolatry. Lord, search me, try me, know me. Identify through the power of your spirit any area, any area that I have set up on the throne that rightly belongs to you. So I don't know what that is for you today. But I know that that's, a, that's an area of inventory we need to engage in. So first of all, we see a careful consideration. Secondly, a covenant compromised. So a careful consideration. Secondly, in this passage, we see a covenant compromised. Verses 19 through 22. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or an idol is anything? Nope. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. We trying to, and I'll bring this up in a second, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, the obvious answer to part B is no, we are not. He is, incre he is sovereign, he's omnipotent, he is all-powerful. But what's going on here? We read earlier, this is what we just celebrated. This passage, this section is best understood in the table that the Lord offers. Paul, later in his epistles, does what? Are we approaching his table in an unworthy manner? Is there known, unconfessed sin in our lives? A covenant, 
which O. Palmer Roberts, an incredible theologian of years past, said this, and I quote, a bond, covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So what in the world does that mean? That means God set a covenant, a binding arrangement with humanity. We see this beginning with, his, with the children of Israel, his covenant people. We see this with us in Christ. I will do this, you will do this. I will give blessings, you will do this. Now, who is the covenant breaker? Well, you're looking at him, and I'm looking at them. That's what our sin does. We are the covenant breakers. The good news, and gospel, as you know, literally means good news. The good news is we have a faithful covenant keeper. That is good news today. That is good news. Are we thankful for that? We've just celebrated his table. The worship team has just led us in singing praises to his name. Your pastor was exactly right. The table is talking about Christ's suffering. But we don't approach this table morosely. We don't approach this table ho-hum-ishly. It's a celebration. It is a celebration that we give to the Father because of what He's done. So how do we compromise His covenant? It's in the text, verse 22. Are we, by our idolatry, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? And you may say this morning, no way! I do not want to be an enemy of God. I am not trying to arouse His jealousy. So we, I don't think there's a soul in here who would say consciously, I am trying to make him mad. That's a dangerous proposition. So we wouldn't consciously do that, but let's be honest. We do by our idolatry. We do by taking the forgiveness that he's given us in Christ for granted. Our position in Christ is joint heirs. We should sing praises to his name on a daily basis because of what we've been given because of what has been secured for us as believers. He didn't just make us paupers. Joint heirs. That's my boy. That's my daughter. I have redeemed him. And positionally, on a side note, we don't walk in a health and wealth prosperity gospel, but there are some of us today, here and in the church, that we need to walk as royalty you hear people say who are you in christ and they'll this is a right answer i'm a sinner saved by grace correct there's nothing heretical nothing wrong with that but we're royalty in christ let me give you part of my story i was adopted at a week old in seattle washington uh, my parents my father's a retired physician in mississippi mom my mother the uh, daughter of a Southern Baptist pastor for 50 years, rich spiritual heritage. So I say, I'm doubly adopted. Tom and Beverly Randall, and by King Jesus. When inheritance time comes out, and my dad talks to me frequently about it, uh, inheritance time comes around, I have a brother, family photos, really interesting. Dad 6'4", brother 6'2", and there's Drew. So, it's really interesting. 
But we, he shares this with me often. Inheritance time comes around. He says there is no difference. In fact, he is very serious, and I'm very glad. In the Israel covenant, the uh, Hebrew covenant, the firstborn got the lion's shares of the inheritance. So think about that. Adopted little squirt at a week old, getting the lion's share of the inheritance. That's who we are in Christ. But we compromise that, how? By provoking his anger with our idolatry. And it doesn't make sense. Does it? It doesn't make sense that we've been given so much. We've been redeemed. We have been restored in right relationship with the Father. And yet we do whatever. And we set up a position of idolatry. That doesn't make sense. So that is a covenant compromised. Um, and we're probably, I hope nobody in here would be guilty of doing idol sacrifices. They did, I dare say that's probably not. If I were to ask for a show of hands, are you sacrificing to an idol? Well, that's kind of strange. But equally as strange is that we would set something up above Christ. When we sacrifice in an attempt to win favor and we put something else on the throne, everything else is on the back burner. And sadly, in some of our lives and in the lives of those in the church, what gets relegated to the back burner by the way we live, consciously or unconsciously, Jesus. And I'll be honest. He will take second place to nobody or no thing. Never. He won't do that. So look at this in light of what he did on the cross. This covenant is not a recent one. The biblical meta narrative or grand story from Genesis to Revelation is one of redemption in Christ. Appreciate, oh, great class, Bill. Appreciate the emphasis there that what? There are many pastors who will remain nameless because my job this morning and calling is not to bash television pastors or other well-meaning pastors who have said, uh, don't fool with the Old Covenant, don't fool with the Old Testament, it has no relevance today. Oh, yeah, it does. Because it points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus from genera gen generation, <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of redemption in Christ. So you don't jettison that at all. It's completely relevant and completely drives how we need to look at the meta narrative. But that story is what? Redemption from Genesis, redemption in Christ. When we set our allegiance on anything or anyone other than Christ, we compromise the covenant that Jesus has with us. Now, is there restoration? Yes. Is there forgiveness? Yes. That was secured by his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So how goes it for us this morning? How goes it? So we have a careful consideration. Secondly, a covenant compromised. Thirdly, wow, a compassionate caregiver. We have a compassionate caregiver. This was set up early in the book at the start of the, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. In chapter 1-1, he talks to brothers and sisters. Side note here, I hope you've never had to be a part of church discipline in a local body. Not just the receiving end, but have to. I have had to do that. 
as an elder at a church in year, years ago, it's never a pleasant uh, experience. But the whole purpose, especially in the context of Matthew chapter 18, with each step, one-on-one, witnesses the church, is for restoration. Each step. But what do we do as believers? What do we do? We go in guns blazing and we want to level someone. That's not Jesus. Doesn't mean you fail to speak truth. But Jesus in John chapter 1 was full of grace. Doesn't stop there. He was full of truth. It's full of grace and truth. Full, overflowing with both. Is that our spirit? If a brother or sister in here, in this fellowship, needs correction, if you have a son or a daughter who needs correction, you don't do that vindictively. You don't do that to get personal gain from it or make yourself feel look better because they're not. You do it lovingly and firmly with the purpose of seeing them back in what? You cannot lose your salvation, but back in right relationship with the Father. That was Paul's focus here. Paul's focus was what? To see the church at Corinth, things had crept in. He wanted to see them back in what? Right relationship. And he did it gracefully and firmly. Paul refers to the church at Corinth as what? My beloved. We see this all throughout the text. He says, therefore, my dear friends, in some translations, that's verse 14. In some translations, it's beloved. If you've got a vindictive nature against a people, you for sure don't call them beloved, right? You say things like, wrongly, you losers, get on target here, uh, you Ole Miss fans, or whatever the case is. I grew up in Oxford, Mississippi, and I can say that now. Kind of made a transferring. But that's the thing. He cared for them. He loved them. You see this throughout this passage. Look at verse, uh, verse 15. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Check out what I'm saying. It's in a spirit of love. It's truth. Look on down at verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in one loaf, comma, except for you losers who are sinning, comma, except for you idolaters. He even called them in the midst of their sin, not to justify it, but called them what? We're part of one body. Huh. But how many relatives do we have in Christ? How many people do we know in the church that we have what? And I'm not condoning sin, nor should you. Definitely Jesus did. Have we ostracized in our families because they did blank? Or they said blank? Doesn't seem to be Paul's approach here. Doesn't seem to be his approach at all. He is not, as many have labeled him, the vindictive apostle. All correction is for reconciliation and restoration. All correction. We have a great basketball team at Bryan College. And I use this analogy before. Jason Smith, the head, the head ladies coach. I wonder if any of you might play basketball. used to coach it. If somebody is having trouble with the free throw, and they're shanking that to the left or the right, you don't just say, you stink at free throw shooting, get out of there. If you've got a coach like that, run. I mean, <laughs> run. You're not going to be able to please that coach. It's not happening. But what do you do? You line them up, okay, they're this way, you steer them this way, and you show them. We can't just say, flee sexual morality to today's Generation Z. We have to say, okay, that's the biblical mandate, here's the better way. So don't just give a corrective, give a solution. Does that make sense? That's important to note 
through Paul in this text. So how do we, do we respond to what? When a fellow believer is caught in sin, as was the church at Corinth, do we respond vindictively? Or as covenant believers, are we restorative or what? Condemning. As we look at the Gospels, what do we see? What was one of the charges that was laid against Jesus? Oh, he's a troublemaker, granted. But what was the major charge in the Gospels? He eats and fellowships with sinners. <gasps> oh my. Do we? Do we? Not to be carried away by an erroneous lifestyle, but do we? How many non-believers do we know? Hmm. At work, at the massive Oak Ridge High School or wherever you're attending, how many non-believers do we know? What's our attitude there? Jesus never, ever condoned sin or is complicit with sin. But he offered grace and mercy, which we have, what? We have celebrated that today, right? We have celebrated that at his table today. Are we compassionate caregivers to those who have been ravaged by sin? Or do we condone it? Oh, it's okay. It's not okay. It put him on the cross. It's my sin. Drew Randall's sin. If there was not another person in this room, it was Drew Randall's sin that nailed him there. If I was it. Are we compassionate caregivers? Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says what? The Lord disciplines those. And Paul, Paul who is one of the supposed authors of Hebrews, Paul says what? He disciplines those he loves. And I think that was somewhat autobiographical because the Lord did it with him and his thorn in the flesh. So the Lord disciplines those he loves, but he must really love some of us big time then. But get the point, okay. But here's the thing. What's our spirit with that? Paul was also incredibly honest as a compassionate caregiver about what? His own sin, right? Romans chapter 7, Paul says what? I do the things I don't want to. You ever been there? I do the things I don't want to. I don't do the things that I should. Blatant transparency, blatant honesty. I wonder for us today, is this a transparent congregation? Not that you air out everything, but where should people find grace, truth, hope, and love? It's called the church, right? Where sin is called sin, confession and repentance is called for, but we make a commitment, I will walk alongside you in the midst of this. It's called the church. Recent study was done by Gabe Lyons in a book, The Next Generation Christians or The Next Christians, that one of the reasons why the 18 to 22-year-old age group is flocking out the back of the church is because grace is hard to find. It doesn't have to be an either or, it's grace and truth. And that's what we need to be about. So, Paul dealt with sin, but all of this under the context. Look at 1031, I read it earlier. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Can't set up an idol. I can't, we can't, to the glory of God. Cannot ostracize a brother or sister struggling to sin. Cannot do that to the glory of God. So, 
several questions real quick for your, for your thought. One, what person, thing, or concept has replaced or supplanted our primary relationship to King Jesus? What's on the throne right now of your hearts? If you name the name of Christ, if you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, what's on the throne? Secondly, are we living like covenant people before a holy and righteous God? I didn't say stuck up religiously, but are we living as covenant people before a holy and righteous God? Thirdly, how do we respond to a brother or sister who's struggling with idolatry? Grace or utter condemnation? And every one of us can think of a family member or someone struggling. Fourthly, and this gets personal, I have to do this myself. What do we need to confess regarding an idolatrous nature before a gracious God? We're told to what? Part of peacemaking is dealing with our stuff, getting the two-by-four out before the little bit of sawdust out of our eyes. What do we need to confess? What do we need to do to own our stuff first? And then fifthly, is there any sin in our lives that we need to flee, as Paul says, that we need to get out of Dodge with, that we need to leave, and it may mean that we need to get some help from somebody in the body of Christ about, Right? that we need to flee, run. When it says, Paul says, and I mentioned, flee sexual immorality, flee idolatry, literally in the Greek, run. Get out of the car, leave it running, run. Run. Book it. That's what we're seeing here. So, this this sounds kind of, right? Heavy for your Sunday morning. Seems overwhelming given our lifelong struggle with sin. Ah, but our hopes in Christ. You ever read Revelation 21? You know what it says? There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Tears wiped away. Got a lot of tears, right? We will be like him. No more tears or pain. Jesus has promised what? This is what we rest in. Never to leave us or forsake us. And that's our hope today. So, what business do we need to do with him? Let's pray. Abba, thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your truth. I pray by your spirit that you would help us today to penetrate our hearts, burn your truth into our hearts. We love you and thank you for your love for us today. In Christ's name, amen.